You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. Let's do it later. Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes. Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Because nope. I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Welcome into the Nick Bob Podcast, live from the AOI Studios, a.k.a. my basement office. Uh, you know what is awesome? Calling Villanova at Marquette on Big Fox like I did on Saturday. You know what isn't awesome? The chair I sat in for the game. You know what chair is awesome? The chair I'm currently sitting in right now that the good people at AOI hooked me up with, the Aeron chair from Herman Miller's. I love this chair, man. I can do two and a half hour pods with Bo Rude, recapping the 2019 year in sports, and feel great the entire time. I can watch Villanova film and Marquette film and Big East film and Creighton film and get my game prep done sitting in this chair for hours and hours and hours and feel comfortable the entire time. This chair is mastered with the latest research around the science of sitting, advancement in materials, manufacturing, and technology. If you are looking for some new office chairs for your business or you just need a new chair for yourself, got to check out the Aeron from Herman Miller. Check out AOI online at AOICorp.com. That's AOICorp.com or give them a ring. 402-896-5520. That's 896 5520 Zero. A couple of things before I set up the pod. Reminder, subscribe to the podcast. Pretty simple. You just click that subscribe button. Boom, that's it. That way, anytime I drop a new pod, it is right there waiting on your phone for you to hit play and consume some of the sweet content we got for you guys. It really helps me out. And that way, you make sure you never miss an episode. So subscribe to the podcast. And while you're at it, leave a five-star review. I really, really appreciate it. Speaking of appreciating y'all, nothing makes me happier than when I'm out and about, whether I'm at the grocery store or calling a game or doing whatever, and someone will come up to me and say, Hey, Nick, man. Love the podcast. Love the podcast. That is just the best. You have no idea. Like that just, just, I want to hug whoever says that. I actually had a, uh, so I was in Milwaukee over the weekend calling Villanova Marquette on Fox, just like I had in the read a second ago. And I had a young man at Marquette, young, I think he was a student. I think that's what he said. He, he comes up to me at Marquette in Milwaukee, like 20 minutes before the game. I got my suit on, my makeup on, I'm all this stuff. Like I just talked to Jay Wright, like I'm ready to go. Comes up to me 20 minutes before the game, says, hey, man, love the podcast, love listening to Bo Rude, love the recap pod, love this. I was like, man, I this, it's so cool, right? It just It's so cool. I can't say thank you enough. Uh, taking a leap here, going out of my own, launching my own podcast, and the kind words and the support, and just you guys going on this journey with me, man, it's just so, so cool. So thank you. And again, subscribe to the podcast. All right, today's podcast. You know... It just felt like with a bunch of different things going on in sports locally and nationally, it kind of felt like a good time to just fire up the old mailbag. So that's what I decided to do. Put it out on Twitter and on Facebook. Hit me with your mailbag questions. And I got a bunch of good ones, man, both on Twitter and Facebook. Got a handful of really interesting ones uh, into my email, Nick at nickbaugh.com, by the way, is the uh, email address on a, on a bunch of different topics. So I figured I'd just kind of 
use this pod to kind of hammer out a few of these questions. Call it good. Chop it up with you guys. So, you know, you're driving around, you're doing whatever you listen to, man. Let's just let's let's just hang out for a while. Uh, couple of a uh, couple of different places to start. Let let's start with uh, with some Facebook questions. Bill writes in. Uh, Nick, thoughts on the Jays' road loss to Butler? Winning at Hinkle is always a tall order, but you can't help but feel the game was there for the taking. Uh, so, I, Bill, I agree. First of all, Creighton had their chances uh, at Hinkle Fieldhouse against Butler. Uh, ultimately, fell short. They had so many opportunities to make it a one-possession game, and they just couldn't do it. I So I was flying home last night, and I downloaded the game, and I was watching it on the flight home, and I was like losing my mind on the American Airlines flight back home where I'm like, oh, man, they how did they, you know, they, they had it down to five for a while. They had it down to four for a little bit and just could never get past that. And, you know, for so you, you say that. They were getting stops in the second half and kind of chipping away at it, just couldn't get over the hump. So obviously Creighton did some some good things, but the reality is when you look at the numbers, you look at how the game played out, Creighton is going to have a hard time winning when they shoot it that poorly from, from three. Tyshawn Alexander made an inconsequential three late with about 20 seconds left to give them four made threes for the game. So basically they made three three-pointers for the entire 40-minute game. And... They also couldn't ever really get out in the open floor, get their transition game going. And while Creighton is absolutely improving with the ability to win grinders and win when they don't, you know, they aren't shooting it great because they did it against Oklahoma, didn't shoot a great, still won. They did it against Arizona State on the road, didn't shoot a great, still won. They still aren't great in a grinder, a low scoring game. They're just not, especially against a team like Butler, who is good in a grinder. Like they're comfortable in that. Butler is elite defensively, fourth best scoring defense in the country. They are the best defense in the Big East. Uh, they got two elite defensive backcourt guys in Aaron Thompson, Kamar Baldwin. So they they Creighton never could establish the tone and complexion of the game, and that hurt. Creighton needed that game to get into a track meet, up and down scoring contest, and couldn't do it. So you. Creighton didn't really play well in that regard. And a lot of that is Butler. They have a way of doing that to you. So I think sometimes we do this in Nebraska football. We always just view it all about, you know, what did Scott Frost do? Well, sometimes it's like Wisconsin's pretty good or Iowa's pretty good. You know, what did Greg McDermott do? Well, Butler's like only lost one game. You know, they only lost one game right now. Like in all reality, guess what? If like the season ended and it was selection Sunday, Butler might be like a one seed. They could be like a one or a two seed. So, uh, you, you got to give some credit to them. But Creighton wasn't sharp, with all that said. Turned it over quite a bit, and and that was as quiet as you'll ever see Tyson Alexander and Mitch Ballack. And they, they they were – you have to go – it's been a while since those guys have had a, that little of an impact on a game in, in quite some time. So frustrating day for for Creighton. Ha, they, they had their chances, and even on a day where you, you didn't play well, you, you had opportunities to, to potentially, you know – Make it a one-possession game, take the lead in the second half, couldn't do it. So th- th- there you go. Um, Michael on Facebook says, what is in the future for Davion Mintz? Can he get a medical red shirt, or are there meaningful minutes for him this year? So Michael must have missed the formal announcement from Creighton a few weeks ago that Davion Mintz is officially red shirting. Not sure if anybody – he is officially red shirting that – his high ankle sprain is still lingering. That ankle's still not totally right. He doesn't feel good enough to go out there and play at, at his full potential. 
and it's 100% his decision. Greg McDermott has said that he supports it, and it's tough, you know? I mean, it, it's, a, it's a tough situation. And I get it, man. Like, the rumor mill has been, you know, in full flux about, oh, he's going to grad transfer and leave. I, who the hell knows what the future holds? Davion's a great kid. Uh, I, I, I sure hope he doesn't leave. And I will say this, um, when like, so there are two different ways to look at this. You look at this both with, so like when something happens in the middle of the season, like there's still a season to be played. So you think about, okay, like let's think about the team and the season right now. And, and and I got to make sure I phrase this correctly in basketball. You can sometimes have too many mouths to feed. There's only one basketball and there's only so many shots to go around, Right. And with Zegarowski and Tyshawn Alexander, Mitch Ballack, and Adenzo Mahoney into the equation, those four guys are all guys that want slash need to take 10 to 15 shots a game. It's hard sometimes to throw another guy out there that wants to take 10 or so shots a game, which Davion Mintz would. So it's an interesting balance. And so I understand that Davion Mintz is probably feeling like, all right, man, half the year is already gone. I still don't feel great. I I still don't feel quite like myself. You only get one crack at a senior year. You want to go out right. Let's be patient. I can wrap my mind around that. So we'll we'll see what ends up happening with Davion Mintz. Although in the short term, I'm like, you know, there's no question that Mintz would absolutely help. But I also think he would be another mouth to feed with 10, 15 shots that it's like, it's hard. It's hard, it's hard to spread all that stuff out. And so you, you think if this guy just rehabs and comes back next year back and better than ever, you start to look at next year's roster, everyone's back. Everyone is back. And you bring Davion Mintz back into the equation? Oh, man. I know there's sneaky, some exciting things brewing about this year with, with the Blue Jays, but next year, look out. Uh. Next question on uh, Facebook is from Paul. Uh, says, not Nebraska-related, but thoughts on Mississippi State firing Joe Moorhead after the early signing period. How does that affect the recruits that already already signed? Makes me glad that Nebraska signed Frost to that extension because it shows they're committed to the long-haul GBR. That's from Paul. Um, the way I understand it is the those players that signed in that early signing period, they're locked in. Because they signed that national letter of intent, which is brutal. I mean, absolutely brutal. Think about this. You you go through this long recruiting process for years, talking about the players, tons of visits, tons of phone calls, tons of communications, tons of sleepless nights, tons of family meetings, tons of thinking about it, weighing it all, and you finally arrive at the decision of the coach that you want to go play for, you sign on a dotted line, and then boom, he is fired two weeks after you sign. Brutal. And listen, I can I I understand what that is like to a certain extent. Now I, I didn't I can vividly remember, vividly remember after school, April 2003. Okay, it was early April. I was driving home from Lincoln Southeast and the I had committed to be to being a preferred walk-on at Kansas for Roy Williams. I committed to Kansas right before the NCAA tournament started, kind of like right when the tournament was going on, early on in March. And I remember seeing the news in my kitchen right after school 
that Roy Williams was leaving Kansas for North Carolina after I had just committed to him to be a preferred walk-on. And I like I just wanted to like collapse. I'm like, you gotta be fucking kidding me. All right. I mean, so at this point, I'm like, I don't know, I don't know what was gonna happen, right? You know, am I gonna go to Carolina now? I mean, do they even want me in Carolina? Okay, who's gonna be the next coach for Kansas? Is this person gonna even want me? I know Kansas is my dream school, but what I mean, what if this coach is totally different? Like, uh, I, I had no idea what I was gonna do. Now, luckily, there was one assistant that was a holdover, Ben Miller, who was in constant communication with me. Bill Self reached out to me pretty much right away the second he was hired, drove down to Lawrence with my family, sat in Bill Self's office, and I felt good about rolling the dice or playing for Coach Self. He told me all the right things. But at the end of the day, and this comes from a guy that loves Bill Self, I think he's the best coach in the country. But he had never seen me play. I committed to play college basketball for Roy Williams. And listen, I mean, everybody's got excuses for why maybe things didn't work out. Like, I think a huge part of the reason why I I woefully underachieved what I hoped to do in my college basketball career was a large part with Roy Williams leaving for North Carolina. Kind of set me down a path of set trying to find my spot. And so I bring that up because I like I understand what those players are going through. Where it's like, you are, it is, I mean, it's a huge decision. Let's be honest, up until these points in their lives, these kids are 17, 18, 19 years old. This is the biggest decision they've ever made. And boom, rug pulled out from underneath you. Brutal. Every single last one of the players that signed with Mississippi State should be let out of their national letter of intent and free to go sign and play anywhere they want immediately. I think that's the right thing to do. I'll take it a step further. I think, this is where where I've always kind of landed on it, I think every player on Mississippi State's roster should be able to transfer and play right away. I've always thought there should be language in, in the NCAA rulebook of if your coach gets fired or takes another job, you should be able to transfer and be eligible right away. There are a few just easy little things that, to me, are kind of no-brainers for the NCAA to do. That's one of them. And that's just where I kind of fall on it. And yes, to answer answer Paul's question, this is exactly why Nebraska extended Frost this season, where everybody was like, oh my God, what are they doing extending Frost? Well, this is why. Because now this, I mean, I've almost lost count. This is now another year two coach fired. Willie Taggart fired at Florida State. Joe Moorhead fired at Mississippi State. Both, Both gone. Meanwhile, Nebraska is extending Scott Frost. It's and that is all just to show. It's not to show me or Steve Sipple or you, the fan, or whatever. Anything like it is. It is to show these recruits Scott Frost isn't going anywhere, and that you don't need to hesitate at all about jumping on board with Nebraska right now. And so I, I'm totally with you. I'm totally with Paul on that, and I think Nebraska needs to keep an eye on. That whole situation, what happens with some of the guys who maybe get led out of their letter of intent or whatever. I know Nebraska had a linebacker, Rodney something, Rodney Grace maybe or something like that, Rodney Gross, had a linebacker that was uh, being recruited to go to Nebraska, but he ended up going to Mississippi State. You never know. You just never know. Uh, one more Facebook question before we get to some Twitter questions. My boy, Andrew Bridger. If you guys don't know who Andrew Bridger is, baller, 
point guard at UNO, played at uh, Lincoln Northeast, really good player. But we're all old and washed up now. But <laughs> Bridge uh, writes, writes me, says, Nick, if you could only win one of these scenarios, which would it be and why? Number one, half-court buzzer beater to win game seven of the NBA Finals. Number two, walk-off home run of the bottom of the ninth in the World Series. Number three, game-winning drive with only one minute left in the Super Bowl. Number four, 25-foot putt to win the Masters. So, I mean, all those would be fantastic. I mean, the drama of like watching a 25-foot putt go in would be amazing. A game-winning drive would mean that you're making multiple amazing plays on on the line. A walk-off home run to be able to take your home run trot around the bases, crazy, right? But I'm a basketball guy, you know? Like I'm going with I'm going with the buzzer beater in game seven of the NBA Finals. And since it's my podcast, I'm gonna switch the language in what Bridger wrote. I wouldn't want it to be a half-court shot. I'd want it to be a regular shot. You ever know, like people can kind of dismiss a half quarter as like lucky or whatever. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's kind of lucky. Now it's maybe it's memorable, but it's like yeah, kind of like like remember Gordon Hayward's shot that almost went in to beat Duke in the NCAA title game for Butler. Like, would you rather have that shot or Chris Jenkins shot for Villanova to beat North Carolina? See, I'd rather have Jenkins shot because Jenkins is more like. Man, that's legit, right? Half quarter is a little bit like, I mean, there's a reason that, you know, they have the State Farm for half court shot and like, I make those half quarter and you win a cheeseburger for your entire set. Like, you know, because a three-pointer is more legit. A jumper is more legit. So that's my choice. Game seven of the NBA Finals. And to me, it would be, I'd be isolated at the top of the key and it would be just a little like this, what is it? Like the little, like hezzy rock you back pull up. So I'd be walking, I'd be walking, you know, like Paul George, he'd be looking at me, I'd be talking shit to him. I'd rock him back, whap, three at the buzzer, game seven, NBA finals. Going to Disneyland, it's going to be great. <laughs> it's going to be great. All right, uh, moving right along uh, to Twitter. Mike on Twitter says, January 5th, Big East power rankings. Okay, first of all, I love that he gave the date. Uh, because this is going to be uh, obviously something that kind of changes week to week. Um, And so you're going off of like right now at this moment, and it's a variety of things, right? Like non-conference, start a conference play, who who I think is legit, who I don't think is legit. Oh, God. Okay, I mean, am I seriously going to do this? Um, January 5th, 9.30 p.m. here, Big East Power Rankings. All right. Number one, I'm going with Seton Hall, actually. As long as Miles Powell is healthy and on the floor, I think Seton Hall is the best team in the Big East. That's my opinion. Now I get it. Butler's got the better record and resume right now, but you know, just for this is just me. You put Butler and Seton Hall. As long as Powell's healthy in Madison Square Garden right now, playing on a neutral floor, I'll take Seton Hall. So I'll go Seton Hall one. God, they're, have you watched those guys? Their length at the rim. Romaro Gill, it's, their length and athleticism at the rim is insane. Every shot at the rim is tough. And then Miles Powell's just a baller. And then they're just, you know, Miles Kale and Quincy McKnight. Those guys are just tough. So I got Seton Hall one, Butler two. Undeniable what they've done. I think Laval Jordan would be my midseason national coach of the year. What he's done is unbelievable. They got one loss, and it's by one point on the road at Butler. And they're not that talented. Like, they're, Kamar Baldwin's a great player. But other than that, like, they're just, 
So Laval Jordan has got those guys like executing at a ridiculously high level. And they are so connected, so good defensively. He's doing a great job. So I go Seton Hall one, Butler two. Uh, three, I'd put Villanova. I don't think it's a great Nova team, but they're coming along. Uh, so Nova at three, I'd put Creighton at four. They got the best backcourt in the conference. And I'm a believer in, in Zagorowski leading the charge. I'd put Xavier at five. Uh, although the wild, you know, the Musketeers, they, they don't shoot it great. Uh, they're a little, little erratic with their decision-making, but man, they got experience and they're, they're tough. I'd go Xavier five, Marquette six, got the best scorer in the country in Marcus Howard. I'd go Providence at seven, even though Providence has got off to a 2-0 and start and Ed Cooley's got those dudes rolling. They're still one of those teams like, yeah, they had a rough non-con, but I'm not like, you ask anybody in the league if they're excited about going to the Dunkin' Donuts Center and playing Ed Cooley in Providence, they're not, okay? At eight, I'd got DePaul off to a little bit of a rough start, nine St. John's, and then 10 Georgetown. You know, Georgetown is a team to me that I just, you know, that to me they have the biggest like implosion potential because they just have had a lot of drama around the team. You know, they have a couple of guys leave the team. Like it's just, and Mac McClung, really talented guy, but he's he can be a little uh, up and down, hot and cold. Uh, so that would be that'd be mine. I'd go, that'd be my power rankings. Going one Seton Hall, two Butler, three Nova, four Creighton, five Xavier, six Marquette, seven Providence, eight DePaul, nine St. John's, ten Georgetown. This league is a monster. I mean, a monster. It's going to be a war every single week. It's going to change a little bit. All right. Ian on uh, Twitter says, uh, Nick, in your opinion, what has led to the influx of high school basketball players in this state, high school basketball in this state? And how important is it to keep Hunter Salas in state? It's a great question on a variety of levels. So if people don't know, Hunter Salas is a kid from Millard North. I'll get to him in a second. And there's just been a lot that the in-state recruiting has increased quite a bit. Um, first of all, I do think there's an element of randomness to this stuff, you know, like, you know, just kind of like a, the stars aligning with a bunch of different guys at the right time. Like there, there's an element of like randomness, but then there's an element of it that you can trace back to one guy and that's Bob Franzies. If you don't know who he is, he, he is a huge reason why this the state of Nebraska, and in particular Omaha, has really on the rise with high school basketball because he created OSA, the Omaha Sports Academy, which is you know an, a bunch of AAU teams, uh, youth leagues, and a youth basketball complex, which it's just, it's not hard. More kids are growing up playing basketball. More kids are, are coming from not just all over Omaha, but all over the state. There's some kids that live in Lincoln that play for the Omaha, you know, the you know for OSA and the Crusaders and, and that AAU program. But it, and it used to be, and it, it's, you know, like the, the guys in, the prep guys would only play with the prep guys and the central guys only play with the central guys. And like, while that creates pride in those, like within those units, you, you, there isn't like a, a meshing to kind of have everybody improve. It's different now. Guys, you know, Omaha South dudes are playing with Millard West guys and Millard North guys are playing with Omaha North guys. And like, it's, it's, it's all improving everybody. And then naturally when you, you know, there's a, it's more exposure, more opportunities, more time playing basketball going to lead to probably some better basketball players. Now I, th- there, trust me, there are elements. I get a little frustrated with some of this stuff. Because I do think it's a little bit like, so 
I, when I played AAU basketball, I played for uh, the Bison Runza team here that was you know, from all over, kids all over the state. But when I was playing AAU basketball, which was from pretty much 2000 to 2003, there was pretty much two AAU teams in the state. Really, one. Like, if you weren't on the, the, the Bison Runza team, that was the team. Now there are, like, I don't, I don't even know. I mean, I bet there's north of, like, 15 to 20 AAU teams. I mean, I don't even, I, honestly, I don't even know. But I know it's, it's, like, more than two. It's, like, 10 to 20. You're telling me, like, the talent is that much better? Or is there money to be made in this? I think we know the answer to that. So, don't get me wrong. Some of the teams are legit select teams, right? Obviously. And Bob's doing a great job with that. Some of the kids, they're collecting a check from their parents, right? Yeah, we'll call your team a select team and here, it'll be $500, thanks. Right? I mean, let's be honest. And, you know, that that can create some issues. I mean, I know there, there are some kids that like are on, an, on a select team that get cut from their varsity basketball team. Like, you, you explain that one to me. Explain that one to me. And then the other thing is it can create some people that are more have more pride and care about AAU basketball over high school basketball, which is still something that like, I don't know, I got I mean, it's hard for me to get used to. And then I think some of that stuff can create transfer mindsets in high school where it's like, if I don't like what's happening on this team, I'll just go over here and create my own team. But with all that said, to me, it is undeniable that a huge part of the rise of Nebraska high school basketball recruiting is the creation of OSA, the Omaha Sports Academy and Bob Franzese. No question about it. No question about it. And as far as Hunter Salas, uh, for those that don't know, he's rated as a top 50 player in the country in the class of 2021. And this guy is, whew, I mean, his highlights and you watch him, I mean, he, is, he can go get it. He's a walking bucket. And the state doesn't get very many dudes like this, you know, top 50 players. So whenever there's a top 50 guy that pops up, you obviously want him to stay here. Really hope either, you know, Fred Hoiberg or Greg McDermott can get him to stay. But man, whenever the blue bloods like Kansas start offering scholarships like they have, you know, imagine that Kentucky's going to start coming, knocking all this stuff. That that gets hard. That Then it gets really, really challenging. It gets really, really challenging. It, whenever, whenever, I mean, I just think it's just like anything. Football or basketball. You're not in an overly talent-rich area where you're just, you know, overflowing with four- and five-star kids. So when they do pop up, you want to keep them in state. So Hunter Salas is the latest example of that. Hopefully that happens. Next question is from my guy Dan Hoppin, who, by the way, is the host of restaurant the Restaurant Hoppin podcast, which is a, a, a part of Parkville Media. My people with Park, Parkville Media, make sure you go give uh, D-Hop a listen. He asks, Nick, top three Omaha restaurants. All right, D-Hop, I got you. I won't. I, I don't have the the knowledge like like you, my man. But uh, number one, I, you got to go with the Drover. I mean, just a, an Omaha uh, a, iconic restaurant. You know, if there's whenever whenever maybe some some people for Aaron Goldsmith from Fox Sports, who's the voice of the Seattle Mariners, came in to call a Creighton game one time, and he said, "Take me to dinner." And I said, "Okay, where did I take him? I took him to the Drover, right?" And he was like, "Oh my god, this place is amazing." So I go Drover one. I'd go rail car too. I love rail car. Out on like 144th and uh, Blondo, I think it is. Good little spot there. Not good food. Really, Jared's the the owner and chef there. He's a great guy. Uh, rail car's great. And then number three, I'll go breakfast. Over easy. 
Nice little small breakfast spot, like 168th and 68th and Q. Um, I love breakfast spots, man. But it is outstanding. So those would be my top three right there. Let me take a drink of my uh, my water here before we I, I lose my voice. Okay. Uh, next question, sticking on Twitter. Going with uh, keeping it in the family here. My cousin Scott tweets at me. Uh, says, uh, Nebraska shoots 8 of 31, 26%, and loses big to Rutgers. If a Fred Hoiberg team needs three-point shooting, can this improve via coaching slash practice, or do we need to recruit to get there? But, you know, it's an interesting question. You know, can can our shooters, you know, can, can you manufacture a bunch of good shooters? Uh, I, I think, first of all, when you look at this team in particular, because the first thought is like the recruiting thing. When you look at this team in particular, the 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 Kavas situation, Monte Kavas, is is kind of amazing. Now, you, you, like you look because you you look at his shooting numbers and you're like, whoa. Some of this could be the fact that he's moved up a level, right? Like there's there's a big difference between playing college basketball at Seattle in the WAC conference and playing against you know. Uh, Georgia Tech and Creighton and Purdue and Indiana and like there's a difference. But the bottom line is this: this is a guy that's a 1,000 point scorer, and heading into this year was a career 44 percent three point shooter. That is like elite sniper shooter. And this year he is ice cold. He is 16 of 52 from three. That's 30%. And I'm just like, wow. Like that is that, that is crazy. Like he's the one guy that I feel like, God, at some point, the law of averages are gonna are gonna kick in and homeboy's gonna get hot. Just because I'm like, God damn, 44% for your career? He scored a thousand points. Like, it's not like he shot 44% one season. You know what I mean? Like. But it's crazy. But the reality is when you look at this roster, outside of him, I don't think anyone on this team is an elite level shooter. I'm not saying they're all bad shooters. I think they have some athletically, offensively talented guys that are capable of making shots. But there's a big difference between being a guy that's a you know solid three-point shooter and you know, being an elite level shooter. I, I don't see a ton of guys on this roster that that are, you know, when they get an open look, I'm like, that's in. And that is something that obviously has to get addressed. Because if you're a team that wants to play with pace and shoot a lot of threes, you better have good shooters. Captain Obvious podcast here. And th- that that gets addressed in, obviously, the recruiting trail. And then that can get it. it but to answer my cousin's question here, like, you can improve, Right. You you can you can get in and and get on the on the gun, which is a shooting machine that you know is like a big net around the basket that rebounds the ball for you and passes it back to you, and you can get up you know a thousand shots quick. But you got You there's going to be a lot of work for some of these guys. Uh, Cam Mack, he just his ass needs to be on the gun on the shooting machine all day every day, all day every day. You can make yourself into a solid shooter. But I think the pure knockdown, Kerry Cohorn, Kyle Corver, Clay Thompson, Doug McDermott, Mitch Ballack shooters are usually guys that they, they're elite when they arrive on campus. 
Of all the shots that Greg McDermott's had to kind of tinker with and improve, like Mitch Ballack isn't one of them. Like, dude walked in and was like, yeah, I'm, I'm a sniper. So, like, I don't know. I mean, I'm kind of, like, hedging the answer. Like, it's both. There are guys that got to get in the, and they got to get in and work and they can make themselves into being a solid three-point shooters. But I, at the end of the day, I don't really see a lot of just elite-level sniper dudes. Ethan Rogge type dudes, Booker Woodfox type dudes. I don't see a lot of those dudes. So you do got to hit the recruiting trail and make sure that's happening. Uh, at Fried Yo on Twitter says, uh, top three and bottom three visiting locker rooms while playing. I, I really recommend, it's sad. Sometimes I'm like, God, do I already have like, <laughs> you have like memory loss because I'm like, who, with certain locker rooms? It's funny the things you remember and the things you don't remember. I can't think of like, I'll just think of three. Like there were two, like Kentucky, Rupp Arena was good. Their locker room was really good. People don't know that the arena is like connected to a hotel. So remember it was so weird because we played there when I was at Kansas and like you, you like take the elevator down and you like walk all the way through this long thing connected. It was bizarre. But their locker room was nice and big. That arena is just huge. Rupp Arena is huge. And then I do remember at Villanova, because that's where the Sixers play. We played there. And uh, any NBA arena, their locker rooms are going to be off the charts nice. Um, so naturally, that was nice. The worst one in my, like, in my opinion, the worst visiting locker room is without question the nap center at Drake. I'm sorry, D-Rock. I won't play this for your recruits, who's Coach DeVries, Coach at, at, at Drake right now. But do, do people realize, like, Drake plays at the student rec center. You, y'all realize that, right? Like, the nap center is a rec center. Like student unions, like dudes who just got off of like English 120 are in there like playing racquetball as you're like walking in to get ready to play Drake on on TV that night. It's it's and this locker room, it, the smallest, hottest, just zero like guys are on top of each other. You're trying to change gear over the game, like brutal. And then I remember there's like one the shower is like there's like one pole. Guys got to stand around the pole and it had like water barely came out. It was like almost pointless to even take a shower after the game. You just get on the bus and drive back from Des Moines just stinking like smelling horrible. That's the worst. (laughs) That is the worst. Uh, Just after the game, everybody's sweaty and nasty and on top of each other and guys in the shower standing around a pole that uh, just horrible. So that's the worst one. Uh, Jay on Twitter says, is Marquette a top 25 team? Uh, I don't, I don't think so, but what's hard is I think sometimes I'm using the years past standard for that and not this season. Anybody that's watched college basketball this season, there are no great teams this season. There almost needs to be like a different way of gauging a good team. So it's like, I look at Marquette and I'm like, oh, they're not a top 25 team. I'm like, ah, but maybe this year, I don't know. I mean, there's a reason, what, there's already been four teams ranked number one get beat. I mean, there are, there are no, I mean, you know, Kansas, they're good. They're not great. Duke, they're good. They're not great. You know, Ohio State, good. They're not great. The reason I say they could be is because they got the best score in the country in Marcus Howard. But they just, to me, haven't proven enough 
that they have enough consistent help around him to be a top 25 team right now. But listen, man, any any team with Marcus Howard is a team to be afraid of. I'm not sure there's a guy that I am more like, I think every shot he shoots is going in. Like, I don't care if it's triple teamed, 32-foot fadeaway, I think it's going in. He is off the charts as a scorer. Off the charts. But I'd say they're, you know, they're they're just outside of the top 25. Uh, at Josh Dillo, Dillo, on uh, Twitter says, Nick, what are realistic expectations for Creighton basketball year to year? So key there is year to year. I'd say finish in the top half of the Big East and go to the NCAA or NIT each year. Obviously, you want it to be the NCAA tournament most years. And then on top of that, you hope to see a run, and a run would be winning a game and punching through to the second weekend, maybe every three to five years, maybe. Does that seem fair, Jays fans? Like, It's tough to say, like, it's tough to... The NCAA tournament's such a crapshoot that it's hard, unless you're like a blue blood, to concretely say, like, you should be going to the Sweet 16 every... I don't know. I, I don't... I don't know. But I'd say it's fair to say top half of the league each year. Go to go NCAA or NIT every year. Most years, NCAA tournament bid. And every handful of years, you hope you kind of get a team that is good enough to win a game or two in the NCAA tournament. That That's how I would frame it. That's just me. As I take another drink here. This is fun. This is great. Luke. On Twitter, God, I love this question. I hope I answer this question to the best of my ability here. This is really good. Luke says, I wish I could like invite Luke over and watch film with him for this. Luke said, it's funny, but defense like Butler's makes the court look smaller. The Jays had no space to operate. What is the defensive principle that leads to that success? Great question, Luke. I'd say... The first thing is the ability to guard one-on-one. Like, just think it, just take everything out of the equation. Like, guard your guy. All great teams can guard one-on-one, great defensive teams. When you don't have to help, when guys aren't getting beat off the dribble, and and here's the thing also about, like, guarding one-on-one. That goes for being able to fight through screens, uh, deny post-entry passes. Like A lot of people think guarding one-on-one is just when my guy has the ball. No. It's being in the right place before your guy gets the ball. When you don't have to help, the court shrinks. And to kind of build off that, I'd say the next thing is kind of what I'm getting to. It's the combination of intelligence and execution and anticipation to handle actions without getting out of position the ability to recognize screening actions okay here comes a double staggered I got to get on his outside hip get ready to trail if I'm my, my guy's getting ready to be the second screener on a staggered okay I'm getting ready to show like the ability to recognize those things early and get ready to either a get ready to fight through a screen or b when you're when you're off the ball and your guy's setting a screen you you communicate and you either you hedge or you show or you tag cutters or different guys. I know a lot of that doesn't really play well in a podcast, but the ability 
to anticipate and identify when certain screens and looks are coming is massively important to not getting beat. This is something I think Nebraska's team this year is atrocious at right now. Just the the, the awareness and anticipating and identifying things to do your work early. Because I'm telling you right now, at, at Division One big boy basketball, when you're late, you're you're going to get shred. If you're like, oh shit, I'm getting screened. Oh shit, here's a staggered. Oh, if you're late, you're going to get toast. You're going to get toast. The ability to anticipate and identify is huge. All five guys communicate and see see a cross screen and down screen action coming. Like all five guys barking it out. You're ready to handle it prior to the action even coming, then execute. It makes it so you're so rarely out of position. Because when you when you identify things, you 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 get situated accordingly to make that appearance like there's nowhere to go. So I'd say it all starts with guarding one-on-one, but then it's all five guys anticipating, identifying actions and executing on how they're being handled. You know, like uh, one of one of the things that is a good drill that a lot of good coaches do at the start of the year is they force their guys to play. F- usually, you know, you play four on four in the half court, or you can play five on five in the half court, and they force the defense to not talk. Like you can't say a word. And what it does is like you end up getting, you know, like it's it's to prove a point, like how important talk is. Like the one thing that I think everybody should should do at some point is like go to an NBA game and sit near the floor and listen to those guys talk. That's why Kielzer's like, they don't even try on defense. Nah, give me a break. Sometimes you 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 ever notice that like when you play pickup, that old like 42-year-old guy doesn't move a ton, but he's always kind of like good defensively. You know why? Because he's talking and he's barking out and he's identifying things. Talk is huge too. So it's a bunch of different little things. God, Luke, I love that question. Luke, you get the question of the day. All right. That's what you get. That's what you get. All right. Moving to some email questions. I'm going to take another drink of my Barry LaCroix. Um, Martin, this is a great question. God, we had some guys just bring it today on this. This is great. Martin writes in and says, Nick. There's been a lot of moving the goalposts with Nebraska football in the last five years. What are your overall thoughts on acceptance of moving the goalposts? Nebraska's goal for 2020 is just to get to a bowl game versus where this program was back in 2014, winning nine games. How long does this last? What are the overall big picture goals for this program moving forward? And how long would it take before those goalposts are moved permanently? Can Nebraska afford to slide another five years of potentially missing bowl games annually and still have the ability to recover with this current regime or would changes need to be made in your opinion? Uh, great question. And an important, it's an important question to ask because I do think it is important to have standards and to say them out loud. But I also think you have to be realistic with those standards when the situation evolves. I think you can move the goalposts to 
use Martin's line, without being a total hypocrite. For example, I'll just use basketball as an example. Look at Nebraska basketball. Last year, with James Palmer and Isaac Copeland and Isaiah Roby and Glenn Watson, the expectation was to go to the tournament and win a game, right? But this year, how on earth, with a straight face, can you say, with a brand new coach in Fred Hoiberg, a brand new coaching staff, a brand new team, so I'm 14 new players in a couple of months, zero experience at Nebraska. How on earth can you say, yep, standard is to go to the tournament and win a game? So I think you can move the goalposts without being a hypocrite by looking at each situation in the moment. With Nebraska football, say what you want. But Bo Pelini was winning nine games a year and played in the conference title three different times. 2009, 2010, 2012. That is a dramatically different situation than right now. You think about the last six years, the instability for this football program has been crazy. Last six years was three different head coaches, two different ADs, four different defensive coordinators, three different offensive coordinators. And the results have been four losing seasons, missed a bowl game three times. This situation currently is a lot different. So I think we can all agree that the standard around here is championships, right? division and conference championships, and then hopefully one day maybe getting a crack at the playoff. But boy, that day feels like it's a ways away, doesn't it? But I also think you can't suspend standards in the meantime, right? You can't just be like, well, every season is just a mulligan until until win, right? Because I think what Martin is asking here at the, at the core of his email. I think what he is getting at is the most fascinating crux of the situation with this fan base and Scott Frost at the helm. Yes, we all know that this is going to be a process. But there still needs to be progress. And how we judge what progress is. Like, how do we judge that? What is progress to you may not be progress to me. And then when is the process complete to then expect championships? That's the million dollar question. How do we judge progress through this process? And then how, how will we know when the process is complete to then expect championships? It's not like, it's like, all right, here we go. Now process is second. Like, Process complete. You may now start winning championships. Thank you for being patient with Scott Frost and Nebraska. It's not like that, you know? So how, 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 how do we judge progress? Yeah, how do we know? Because you want to see progress throughout the process, and then how do we know the process is complete? I, I, I don't think you can let it slide for too long to answer Martin's question. You can't have another, another five-year slide of missing bowl games? You can, no way. Like, even this year, it's unacceptable that this team didn't make a bowl game. And listen, this team wasn't that good, but come on. I feel like I can say that and still say I believe in Scott Frost. 
But moving forward, you got to start making bowl games. Because at some point, you got to start improving. You know what I mean? Like, you, you got to start improving. And it's funny that Martin a- emailed this question because I, I was having a great conversation with someone the other day. And this person who I was talking to made, he had, he made such a great point. Because we were talking about, you know, we are talking about programs and winning f- uh, football and basketball and all that stuff. And the person I was talking to, he said, the only way to become a winning program is to win. Period. And I know that's like, well, that's simple. Because it, it's, that's how it is. The only way to become a winning program is to win. So at some point, we can all go cross-eyed and get blue in the face talking about weight room and buy-in and culture and recruiting and all that stuff. But the only way to establish a winning program is to win. Got to start winning. Got to win. Got to close out the Colorado game. You got to close out the Purdue game. You got to. You got to close out the Indiana game at home. You. You got to. You. You got to find a way to at least get it to OT against Iowa. You. You. You know what I mean? Like at some point, you got to start winning these games. And with all that, like that's a, that's the thing about Nebraska's situation is tough right now. Because you know you sit and you watch these bowl games over the last couple of weeks. Iowa, Wisconsin, Minnesota. I mean, even a team like Illinois made a bowl game. You, but you know, you watch these teams play, and then you think about you know, Purdue's got Jeff Brom, Northwestern. Yeah, they had a bad year, but they're one year removed from winning the Big Ten West, and they've had ten win seasons a few times over the last four or five years. For Nebraska to rise. Someone has to fall back. Not everybody can win 11 games, you know? For Nebraska to rise, someone has to fall back. Someone's got to be in the cellar. And I ask you, when you look around the Big Ten West, who's falling back? I think that part of the job has changed dramatically since when Nebraska walked into the, you know, when they went from legends and leaders and then when the West was officially formed. I think that part of the job has changed a ton from even when Mike Riley took over. I mean, let's be honest, with all due respect, I mean, with Daryl Hazel at Purdue and Tim Beckman and Bill Cubitt at Illinois, there were two games a year that were layups. Layups, for the most part. Not anymore. Different animal now. That is tough. Like that, that's, that part of this job is tough. Good stuff there with Martin. Good question. Um, Ryan uh, emails and says, uh, Nick, if you're Coach McDermott, how do you approach Mahoney moving forward? Once he puts his head down to drive it, it seems like he is forcing something up almost 100% of the time. Needs to learn if it's not there to spray it to an open shooter. He is a great asset, but re- needs to really focus on the flow of the offense. Also, heading to Indianapolis to see Doug play in February. Any restaurant slash bar recommendations? That's from Ryan. We'll start with the restaurant recommendation. Well, first of all, you've heard of, I mean, I'm sure the St. Elmo Steakhouse, it's worth going there. It really is. So you want to get you a steak, go to St. Elmo's. But my favorite Spot in Indianapolis. Cafe Patichu. Amazing breakfast spot. It's maybe, 
my favorite be- breakfast place I've ever been to in my life. Unbelievable place. You know, the word is that even when, you know, because obviously when Brad Stevens is at Butler and all that stuff, when he's, when he always comes to Cafe Patichu and he's with the Boston Celtics and eats it. Like, but I'm telling you, this place is off the charts good. Off the charts good. So Ryan, uh, my, my biggest recommendation would actually go get you your breakfast game right. Cafe Patichu. It's right dead in the heart of downtown. It's just an awesome, awesome place. Okay, but to his, his question about Denzel Mahoney. Okay, so with Denzel Mahoney, I think... Right now, just can we all take a step back in, in how we're assessing and digesting and watching and discussing Denzel Mahoney? And everybody right now, just take a deep breath. Everybody needs to take a deep breath in Denzel Mahoney. He's doing fine. Is he a well-oiled machine that is firing at all cylinders and fitting in this system perfectly right now? No, not yet. But that's okay. And a part of what I think Coach McDermott has to be right now is just patient with him. There is no substitute for time. Sure, there are ways you can expedite this whole process of getting him acclimated and within the system of the offense. But I think he'll he'll get better and more comfortable. I mean, if you ask me, I think he's improved with fitting into the system a ton from game number one against Oklahoma to this Butler game on Saturday. I think he's improved even just in that short amount of time. And there is a balance with with Denzel Mahoney. You want him to be aggressive, to drive and attack and score and draw fouls because that is what he does best. I mean, if you're not going to have him do that, why why you... It'll be like telling Balak, don't shoot. So there is always that balance as a coach of guiding that aggression without crushing confidence and getting them thinking too much. And if there is anyone that is great at navigating this, it's Greg McDermott. It's maybe one of the things he's best at as a coach. First of all, he's X's and O's just like, sort of got every time I watch him play, watch Creighton play, there's like a new set, a new wrinkle that I'm just like, oh God, is that good? But he is so good at cultivating confidence and getting guys to play with aggression, but intelligence. Like, he's just awesome at that. So, to me, the the two things that yield results in basketball is, number one, just playing and building that chemistry with teammates and comfort within the system. You just got to play. Got to get in the practice floor. You got to play. And then there is film of yourself. Actually sitting down, and seeing yourself on film in spots where Greg McDermott can pause and point out, this is where you need to jump, stop, and kick. This is where you need to go set this screen. This is where it's got to be just catch and swing. This is when it's got to be a slip out. This is when you need to just, this is when you really need to attack. Film is just a great teacher like that. We're visual creatures. Sometimes you have to see it to understand it. And that's where film is great. So I think film, 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 film. And then I think play, 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 and patience, 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 patience. That's my thought of Mahoney. He's a really good player that is going to make a big impact. Just watch. Just watch. All right, last question comes from uh, John. It says, hey, Nick, 
With you appearing more and more on TV as a color man for the Big East basketball broadcast, do you have any good stories of people sitting behind you either during the game or during your halftime on-camera portion acting like complete magooshes or trying to make you laugh? How do you zone that out? Have you ever channeled your inner Chip Kelly, turned around and yelled, hey, would you shut up? Thanks for sharing your gift with us all. That's from John. I appreciate that, John. You know, honestly, I don't. I, I haven't really noticed uh, people kind of going crazy behind us or anything like that. Like you're when you got the headset on, it's kind of tough to hear and, and see all that stuff. But the only thing I can think of in terms of just like times of calling a game and like interactions, maybe with a fan. I don't know if I've told this story. I maybe have, but the one that comes to mind was in 2014. It was Doug McDermott's senior year. Creighton is playing at Seton Hall. And I'm getting ready to do the pregame show with with John Bishop. And the Jays are on the floor warming up. And a, a guy comes up behind me and taps me on the shoulder. And it's a Seton Hall fan. And he's sitting right behind us. Taps me on the shoulder. And I turn and he says, hey, which one's McDermott? Which one's McDermott? I'm like, okay, he's he's right there. He's in the white t-shirt right there. I, I point him out. And he he the Seton Hall fan scoffed and almost chuckled and said, That's it? That's McDermott? That's it? Like real almost condescending and chuckled, like, are you kidding me? That's it. I said, Yeah, you know, yeah. I said, Yeah, it doesn't really look like much. Kind of got a baby face. And and the guy kind of like chuckling, walked away and like was shaking his head. And I'm like, okay. So anyways, the game starts. And anybody that's watched Doug over the years, one of the things that Doug was incredible at was there were certain games he was just shot out of a cannon and was lighting up the scoreboard immediately. And so it was one of those patented fast starts for Doug. He is killing Seton Hall. Threes, posts up, one foot fadeaways, little shots off the glass. I looked it up. Doug had 13 points after the first media timeout. 13 points after the first media timeout. So after the first media timeout, I knew where this guy was sitting. He was sitting right behind us. I take off my headset and I turn around and I look at the guy and I say, he's, he's pretty good, isn't he? He's pretty good. And give him a little smile. He nodded and he smiled back at me kind of annoyed and said, yeah, 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 and kind of like dismissed me. But that's that that's the the story I could think of. I love it. He said, which was McDermott? He said, that's it? That's like it's almost say like this little white, little tiny, not very big. This is this guy's this is it. I said, okay, you just watch, big dog. <laughs> He's about to fucking kill you guys. You have no idea. By the way, Doug had 30 in that game. Doug had 30 and 10. Just kicked Seton Hall's ass that day. But I loved it. Uh, that's probably the, the best story I got for you. So there you go. We'll cut it at there. We're at it about an hour. Uh, man, that was fun. God, you guys brought it today with your questions, man. I love you guys. You guys are the freaking best. Appreciate you guys, man. We'll do this more. Sometimes I like to fire up a mailbag just, uh, you know, because sometimes it's good to get to what, you know, what's on your guys' mind, you know? Pick your brain. Uh, appreciate you guys uh, making making the pod a part of your day. Again, like I told you, subscribe to the podcast. 
That way, it helps your boy out, yes, but it also, you got every episode waiting for you right there on your phone. You don't have to search it. It'll set, boom, it's right there. You just click on it, hits play. You'll never miss any of the great episodes that we got cooking for you. Uh, so make sure you subscribe to the pod. Make sure you give it a five-star rating and review. Uh, we appreciate it. All right, that'll do it for this mailbag pod, and uh, we will catch you next time on the Nick Bob Podcast. Thank you.